Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and it's so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm joined by one of the most innovative minds in sport. Ben Ryan is perhaps best known for his incredible three years coaching the Fiji National Sevens rugby team to two world titles and a stunning Olympic gold medal at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. He joins us to hold a microscope over his creativity, the lesser chronicled origins of his innovative style and why enjoyment is so critical to getting on the right path for us, no matter where we're trying to get to. As ever, the music for the show is provided by the brilliant Dirty Freud. Check him out over at Dirty Freud on social media for his latest tunes and news. Hello and welcome. How are you feeling? What do you think of the new show name? The Creative Condition. It's a little bit more descriptive, eh? Well, thank you for sticking with us. If you're a regular listener of Arrest All Mimics, we are now moving forward to the Creative Condition podcast, which I hope you'll agree if you are a regular that. It just describes the show a little bit better. It gets under the skin of the nature of the conversations I have with these wonderful guests that have joined me over the last five years. Can you believe that? From Annie Atkins to Sir John Hegarty to Graham Wood from Tomato. We've had Jane Boyer on the show, misled Malika Favre, Sean Ryder, Don Letts. We've got Alan McGee coming up. We've got a whole cacophony of creative stories on this show and I'm very excited to take it forward with the new guys. How are you? I think it's a big question at the moment with everything that's going on. We're still in the pandemic, though we do have some light at the end of the tunnel. Here in Britain, we do have a roadmap, as the government are calling it, to get back to some kind of normality where we can let our creativity flourish and roam in a bit of a wider environment once more. So I hope you will. Let us know. Hit us up. We can always have that conversation. We can have it publicly. We can have it privately. At Ben Talon Pod, all one word on social media. The show is on all the big platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, you name it, we should be on there. And if we're not, let us know and I will get that sorted out for you. Definitely keen to hear what you think of the new brand, the new name, the new identity moving forward. I'm hoping it's going to catch a few more casual passers-by wherever they may be. Um, So I wanted to add a little bit more value to the start of the show and I talked to the founding sponsor of the show, Illustration X, who've been here since day one. Wonderful illustration and animation agency. And they're actually going to provide us with an industry insight for each episode. So I've been represented by Illustration X for just over a decade now, and they work with a deep love of creativity and the arts, and they do a lot of great work beyond simply commissioning illustration. They work closely with their artists, with people like the Association of Illustrators, who also support this show, the Society of Artists' Agents. Uh, they've got a voice. You know, they, they helped petition the government recently when it came to support during the pandemic for creative people, along with the AOI, you know, to raise the case. They're always asking us for answers in surveys. They want to keep a keen eye on what's going on in the marketplace, right? I guess a lot of us don't always like to think of our creativity as a, as a business tool, but it's got to be that if you want to make money in this this system that we live in. So they're going to offer us a little tip at the start of each show, which I think is going to be very, very valuable for you guys. Go and check them out over at illustrationx.com. They recently rebranded themselves, and I think it's fantastic, representing a lot of artists. And 
we wanted to, we kind of sat down at a conversation and we said, right, where do we kick off? What's been the big thing, whether it's pandemic, pre-pandemic, what's, what's been changing, what's prominent, what's jumped out that might be valuable to you guys as creative professionals? And here's one for you. So over the course of the last year, the amount of inquiries that the agency receives for commissioned illustration to be animated has gone from 1% to 10%. One year, that's a big rise, 9% rise in animation queries. But don't freak out. <laughs> I've got some personal insights to put into this. So when we're talking animation, we're not talking full animation studio, you know, labor intensive, big budget, weeks and months and years at a time to create a piece of animation because, you know, I never really want anything to do with that. I went through a phase of thinking that I should learn to animate a little more. And when there's a big should, but without something that I'm feeling, I can't do it. That's why I was rubbish at school. That's why I still find myself kicking the back of the seat of the person in front in a lecture if it isn't connecting. Um, call me childish, it's just the way I'm wired. But when that came to animation, that was very much the case. I thought, well, well why? Why do I want to learn animation? Because it's just going to be another task when I get home from work that keeps me up at night, that stresses me out. And I need, I need a cause, I need a motivation. And I never had it. And way back when, going back to 2009, I got a query. And at this stage, I'd been exclusively an editorial illustrator working for magazines and newspapers. And I got a query from a director who I'd met at E4. And he wanted to commission me to create animated artworks for Skins for a TV commercial, a 30-second commercial for the new season of Skins. I think it was season three, looking back. I said, yeah. Of course I did, because he loved the style of work that I love to create, but I didn't have a clue about animation. Luckily for me, um, Mike Maloney, who is the head of Art & Graft, fantastic agency, held my hand through the process and taught me how to set my artwork up in PSD so that it could be animated by a motion graphics professional. And that's still happening to this day. So I've just finished a, a, a piece for BT Sport, three sec sorry, three second, a three-minute film about Jason Robinson, rugby league and rugby union legend about his life and his career. And I didn't have to do anything more than I would usually do, setting my artwork up as a layered PSD. And I hand it over to the motion guy, and they run with it, and they animate it. So there's that extreme. But what the agency have pointed out, and what I've noticed too, is that there's this lovely middle ground that's not too labour-intensive to learn, where very subtle, simple elements brought to life in a very, very simple moving way. So think about London Underground, right? When you're walking and you're going down the escalators and you see those digital advertising boards with the movie posters on and, then, you know, there might be, let's say it's a, I don't know, a bank job, a heist film. You might have like a car screeching off in the background and the car's not moving, but maybe one wheel's spinning or maybe there's like a bit of blood running from something if it's about true crime, you know? Really simple element, but it just moves it into the realm of something that's moving for digital devices and the likes. And I see it more and more. I see uh, cool styles of illustration, and they'll just be a simple element. And I think that's something that, you know, thanks to YouTube and the resources we have at our hands, you can actually just pick up and learn in a, you know, in a few hours. So it's certainly worth getting your head around how your work might come to life so that you can pitch that to a client. And nine times out of ten, they'll already have a motion graphics professional or an animator in place that you will work with, and it's a lot of fun, and you can learn how that process works. On the flip side, maybe you want to learn that subtle motion and maybe you do want to go the whole hog and learn how to work stop frame or CGI. That's completely up to you. But I just think that statistic, one up to 10% of all inquiries in a big agency like Illustration X 
have for animation. Certainly food for thought, and that is the first tip. Thanks to a founding sponsor, Illustration X. Check them out, illustrationx.com. Uh, the show is also kindly supported by the wonderful Association of Illustrators. Go and check those guys out for any kind of business, professional, creative support in the realm of the illustration industry. So that's the business. Um, I love that. I love that. I had a chat with Illustration X, like I mentioned, and we've, you know, for too long I'd just been going, Illustration X, Illustration Agency, go and check them out. Why? There's always a why, right? That's modern marketing. I think, you know, we can't just sell to people anymore. I think there's got to be a, an honest story that offers value to people but and i felt all along that these guys offer a lot of value to the creative industry so i hope that's going to help you guys out we're going to try and get one of these industry tips in every episode so look forward to that uh where are we where are we where are we where are we so let's get on with it sport sports are pretty new field for this show i don't believe i've covered it in the past certainly not as an exclusive episode but then along comes Ben Ryan, and along comes this new title, The Creative Condition. And it's nice because it opens up the chance for me to kind of bring you guys guests from further beyond the arts. And maybe some of you guys just want to hear from designers and illustrators. That's fine. You can cherry pick the episodes. But I really think to grow creatively and to get inspired and to keep inspired and motivated, it's really, really important to pull, you know, pull... Um, highlights and gems from way beyond and sport has always provided a, a great inspiration to me football wrestling rugby growing up it wasn't about the sports themselves it wasn't about watching winners and losers it was about the psychology and about how people motivate themselves to achieve these incredible seemingly impossible goals and that's where today's guest ben ryan comes in as a kid and as a teenager even now I see countless mirrored lessons that sit exactly halfway between sport and art. It's hard to ignore. You know, it's all about motivation, creativity, innovation, um, just getting ourselves going and trying to be the best we can. And Ben Ryan is a man who masterfully straddles that line. So you might be asking who. Ben is one of those um, kind of subversive characters. You don't, you know, you don't, you might not hear him up alongside a Jose Mourinho or a Jessica Rennes or a Serena Williams, but he has achieved as much as anyone, in my opinion, if not more. I'm slightly obsessed with his story at the minute. So Ben, in a nutshell, was the England Rugby Sevens coach for a number of years, took them to new heights before he fell out of love, which he's going to tell us why, with the game. And he questioned his love of sport and his creativity and you know his worth and everything else like we do when we hit a down spell. And then, in 20 minutes, using nothing but instinct, Ben took on the Fiji National Sevens rugby coaching job and he moved out there on that whim with no money in hand. And it's just the best, most romantic sporting story you could hope to hear. But crucially for this show, it's underpinned by scintillating originality, fresh ideas, human empathy, giving people the conditions to thrive creatively, athletically, to make them feel good about themselves. And Ben is a very, very valuable source of information on all that good stuff. So here's a little excerpt from the start of his book. It's a brilliant opener, and it goes like this. Sometimes instinct takes over. Sometimes you just know within the first two seconds. Sometimes a choice seems just right. You have no idea where it will end up taking you. There is no safety net. No lifeline, no guarantees of rescue or second chances, just the faint outline of a dream. And it sets the scene for a story that I really believe is stranger than fiction, involving witch doctors, cyclones, bereavement, 
um, awesome tales of family support, empowering individuals, working with eccentric characters. So that's the thing. If you get the chance, go and read Ben's book, Seven's Heaven. It's so inspiring. And, and I, I just will go back to that book time and time again for inspiration. That's the opening segment from it. Uh, it's ghost written by Tom Fordyce, who is the, the opening guest on Ben's new podcast of his own, The Ben Ryan Show. Again, get on that. So much, risk, sorry, so much rich material going on over on that show. Um, so that's about it. That wraps it up. Ben tells the story, of course, better than anybody ever could. He sits down for a good hour with us to share all that good stuff, all the insights, all the gold. So I hope you enjoy it. Get as you thought. Join the conversation over at Ben Talon Pod on social media, Instagram and Twitter. Let's get into this awesome conversation with Ben Ryan. Enjoy. Do check out his podcast. Read the book, Seven's Heaven. Nice one. All of my guests, I'm fascinated with those formative days. And I love your stories of playing table tennis and being out on bikes. And it's something I completely relate to as a child of the 80s. You know, it, 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 I don't know if it's looking back with rose-tinted glasses, but it felt like a really important way to learn some basic world knowledge, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Get to know what's right and wrong, I suppose. Get to form your first decent relationships with your mates. Um, get to do things like you feel a bit of autonomy, like, you know, a bit of independence. Get to make some mistakes and hopefully not do anything too drastic that winds you up in bother, but that you can learn from. Yeah, no, I, I, it is. I, yeah, I, I, I. Now that I live kind of close to where I used to, I used to grow up. I'd take Michelle, my partner, would go on on long walks like you do in COVID, and you'd say, "Ah, oh, I used to. That's where I used to go when I was seven or eight or nine. Or I'd, I'd get my BMX around here and we'd do that. Or, yeah, it, it's. Um, yeah, I do look back on those those days fondly, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, what was what was the what was the family set? Were you were you I mean, you know, with sport and the arts world, I'm always curious about the very early seeds of what might have triggered that interest. And I mean, I guess we hit upon it there, they're just being outdoors and, and playing out. Would it would it be fair to say that was an early foothold for you I, in sport? I've always felt a, a little bit, I talk about it a bit in the book, I've always felt a little bit like I don't particularly fit into any, any hole. So when I was, you know, I grew up, I went to a... Um, little primary school around the corner and stranded on the green. And then I, then I got a scholarship to go to a private school for junior school. I didn't really enjoy it. And I left there after I was sort of 12 or 13. I went to a big comprehensive in South London, even though I was living in West London, and I'd get a bus and a train and a bus to get there because they played rugby and there weren't many comprehensives in London that did that. And then we had a, a private house on our road, but it was the only private house on the road. The rest were all council houses and we were next to a council block. So it was kind of like you're a posh kid, you're not a posh kid, you're a posh kid, you're not a posh kid. You know, I'd, you know, for a couple of years, I'd be cycling back home from Ealing where my, the private school was with a bright green blazer and bright orange hair. And, you know, I was, I was, I, I, I certainly got a bit of abuse from some of the local lads, you know, that they certainly saw me as something different. And I, and it's hard to kind of try to have a, a, a proper coherent argument with people to tell them oh well but my parents aren't paying for this education and like you know I know it's got this prof stuff but I actually you know you can't really do that except just just cycle a bit faster to get out of get out of bother really and so that's kind of, and that's the same that continued really I went to when I went to uni I went to Loughborough which was a nice real nice mix and then to Cambridge which obviously has got its it's also got a really nice mix and a lot of my mates actually at Cambridge came from working class northern backgrounds uh, and comprehensive background so I actually saw a lot of lot of life at Cambridge weirdly but um 
yeah, that kind of that's I guess I had a bit of a mixed background, but I had a nice, lovely. We had a nice place in Brentford and a nice big garden where I'd spend all my time really. And it was a bit like I don't know if you remember, probably a bit before your time. Um, um, it's um, Mr. Ben. I don't know if you remember Mr. Ben and the, the really simple way that that was drawn, but he would have a little adventure. He'd go into some um, dressing, um, uh, fancy dress shop and he'd go out the back and he'd be then suddenly a, a Cowboys and Indians. And then when he'd leave the shop and go back out, he would see people on his street playing Cowboys and Indians. And it was a bit like me, you know, you would see someone doing something on telly, football, You'd be watching FA Cup final or something, and or, or snooker, and then you'd want to you want to recreate it. You spend all day in the garden, you know, kicking a ball around, pretending you were whoever you just watched on telly, or you know, sprinting around and all those sort of things. So I guess I gained, yeah, I did a lot of um, what do you call it, fantasizing, but definitely a lot of play around that kind of just you know, like putting yourself in a different world, like mm-hmm. thinking different things. Um, and I still do that to be honest with you, you know, I'll, I'll go, if I'm on a drive, I'll go and think of, I have different things in my head, whether I'm working out how I'm going to spend my 75 million, I've just won a lottery or uh, my acceptance speech for, you know, Olympic gold medal. And I used to do that before we I've won Olympic gold medal. I used to do that all the time. Um, I kind of like taking myself off into those, those fantastical worlds really. Mm. Um, and then my little sister, she's an artist, um, and uh, my older sister was is very dramatic and into her. She was an actress and didn't quite make it. Um, and then so my mum my liked all of that. And my dad was qualified as a, an engineer. He used to fix planes in, for, for the, for the um, Royal Air Force. He was a mechanic. Um, and, and so there, there was a bit of a creative side of things so that when we go on, go, go away, you know, they would tuck us into to go and see some art or, a building or something like that and uh, yeah yeah so I guess from an early age I kind of yeah I I I liked it yeah I liked it it's funny isn't it because we don't even I mean I can't I can only speak for myself but from what I've observed even you know 16 year olds they, they don't understand yet who they truly are so they how can you kind of go this is what I want to do that's the exact career you know we all have the kind of astronaut or the football superstar dreams and it's important to foster an environment where we we can dream in that way because that's how we start to piece together maybe who we are but I mean to put that kind of pressure on us you know on a young kid or a school kid or even to surely it's about what you just described there and about the space to, to find out and the space to dream and the space to play because there's too much restriction on that whether it's in school and the curriculum or whether it's hierarchies I just find that there's a lot of structure and that and that maybe we you know a little bit more freedom to make some innocent mistakes would would benefit a lot more people especially in terms of mental health yeah I agree I mean my mum and dad I was really lucky that they really did give me a lot of flexibility so they you know and I guess maybe that was the time as well that no one was bothered if you left the house in the morning and didn't come back till it was dark you know they weren't going to there was no phones to find out where you were. You just, we just rocked up and you knew when tea time was and that was about it. And, and kind of as I got older, that continued really. And so it does, it does mean that you do do some stupid things and make some mistakes, particularly, you know, I was growing up in going to mate school, going to school in South London and, you know, you, you, that, that just, you fall in with some wrong people and some right people and a big comprehensive, you know, you have lots of uh, interesting interesting mates that you sometimes take you down little little alleyways that you shouldn't go down really but it's all about making sure that hopefully the penny drops in time before you do anything too stupid 
yeah um but yeah that's it so so yeah i i had a bit of varied varied um growing up really yeah well i mean one thing that i've, that I've you know as part of the research and just out of interest in your story I've, you know i've listened to the podcasts that you've been on and and, and yes one thing that hasn't come up too much is your experience at st edward's school i i was mm. um you know reading that what was this what was the start in six years you had a player in every england set up from 16s to senior that's you know that's impressive early success did you when you came into that role did you feel like I mean was there confidence there you know did you did you all or were you being free and, and creative and playing in that role yeah I was kind of left to I was left I, I set up a PE department so I'd gone from playing professional rugby having an injury having to be a supply teacher in inner London so I was um and also I was at Raheem's old school in Wembley and um by right by by Ikea and um, I ended up in a place in South, a school in Southall that was two and a half thousand kids. So third biggest comprehensive in London, really talented kids, a lot of tough kids, but I really enjoyed my time there. And I probably would have stayed there if, if I could have stayed there, but I got asked to go to this big boarding school, completely opposite, you know, Richard Branson's kids and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Amelia Clark, who's in game of Thrones, you know, I used to teach her as well. And, 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 um, but I was head of PE because there was no one else. <laughs> it was the only PE teacher. So I was left kind of to myself. And actually for the first couple of years, I could concentrate on just doing my thing creatively and coaching. Mm. Um, and I actually taught art in those first two years as well. I taught, I had only done art history A-level um, and I only chose that because it was my third A-level. I was, couldn't really think of anything else to do. And the teacher that taught us had never failed. No one had failed it. So I thought, well, that's just, this could be all right. Um, mm. And he used to take off most of the big horse races he would not be around for he would be somewhere else watching the horse racing and he would have just told us keep quiet don't tell anyone um and off he'd go and so you know ascot and epsom you know when he, had, he would have a week off but but he actually weirdly like out of everything that i've ever studied i've hung on to a lot of stuff he taught me you know and i'll be sitting with our mates you know 20 years later we'll talk about the juxtaposition of that facade or whatever it is and and we'll talk quite you know we'll get into it and we'll talk about all of that and I, I really enjoyed Kandinsky as well and so I, I did modules on Kandinsky and and uh you know he had synesthesia I think that's how you pronounce it where he, he the colors made noise mm. found that so fascinating um and so I was kind of doing a lot of creative stuff in my first couple of years in St Edwards and had a Scottish headmaster so as long as the team were doing well and everyone was behaving themselves, he was happy for me to to go and do my own thing, and um, and it and it got the best out of me as a young coach, really, just being allowed to express myself. Mm, so now this this now the, the dots join, you see, because I you know having read the the Fiji story and and the England stuff, you know, which is very well documented for good reason. I you know I was I was itching to know what were the the, the formative steps and I, and I, again it just chimes with everything I believe about creativity and that, and that freedom to 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 find out what we, we've hit upon. So that's wonderful. You know that's wonderful to know that you were kind of given something of a blank canvas to do that in. And it just doesn't it just goes to show you know when when people are given the trust and given the backing that great things can happen. Yeah, that that's happened on a number of occasions, really, with me. It it, it did it as a school teacher. It did with Fiji because you know we've come to that. But the, the, and with England at the start, it did because I took over a sevens program. Won't get into bore you too much, but but basically, it it I just couldn't access the players that I, that the team used to be able to access. So I had to think creatively about how to do stuff. And 
I was on to a hide into nothing really at the start. So my bosses kind of just let me get on with it. As long as I didn't spend the, spend the, what budget they gave me, they let me do whatever I, I wanted to really. And before that, I'd been at a club where exactly the same. They had just avoided relegation. They were in the third tier and they had let me crack on with stuff as well. And as long as you kind of let people know what you're doing and you manage well, which I kind of have done badly and done well, um, you know, in England, I didn't particularly upmanage well at all to my bosses. I always thought it was their job to manage me and tell me what my my KPIs are and when I'd get reviewed and stuff. But upmanaging is a two-way process for sure. And I did that really well with Fiji because I had a military dictator and a convicted murderer as my two bosses. So I had to upmanage well. Um, so as long as you kind of set your stall out and you keep people informed and you don't give too many people above you curveballs that are embarrassed them or... Or then I think, yeah, you can be allowed as it you just, when you start your journey to, to just go and do your own thing. Mm. Did you, did you, did that become your norm? You know, did you, did you think that that that's just what these roles are? Because I guess if they're your early roles, there's maybe there's a, a chance that you think, well, this is what coaching is and, and all roles are going to be this free. Yeah, I think, well, that's how I, that's probably how I came unstuck at England because that's how I started my time with England. And then as um, the team became a bit more successful, as we got a bit more budget and as it was kind of under the microscope a bit more, my bosses were getting more and more involved, but not involved. So, you know, the sort of bosses that would come in at a meeting when you've just spent four weeks preparing a team, flown to New Zealand, maybe lost a game because someone's, you know, dropped a ball or whatever, and you've really put your heart and soul into it. And then, you know, that, that boss will just tell you, oh, that guy's rubbish, drop him. And um, you get pretty angry when people try to get involved when they've actually not really been involved. Mm-hmm. And, and that was becoming more and more the case. So my eye was getting taken off the ball more by budget meetings and planning meetings and actually getting the boys to be their best version. And, you know, and, and, and to the point where I really fell out of love totally was with professional sport, didn't want anything to do with it. And, that's when kind of combination of either I definitely would have been pushed if I hadn't kind of finally jumped. Mm. You met, you said something that, that, that was, I thought was wonderful and, and you referred to it as blind spots, um, mm. you know, materialism and the things that I guess, you know, I, I, I kind of picked three things in that vein as I put status materialism and the idea of success. I find these are consistently, and this isn't just in sport, but I find that they are consistent diversions at well, blind spots. That's the best way I've heard it put um, because of what the, you know, they lead us away from just finding our happiness. Is that something you agree with? hundred mm, um, percent. And, and that, you know, I think, I think kind of wrapped around all of that um, is ego. So the, you know, big blind spot, you, you don't want to be, you don't want to like look like you're not as good as, as somebody else, or you don't want to be shown up publicly, or you don't want to um, get, get, be, be, you know, get, lose an argument. And all of these things, I think, especially in coaching and elite sport, you know, it's quite a macho environment. And so you're constantly wanting to keep your, to, to, to if, if you're not careful your ego just takes control and you look back at it and think the decisions are being made by somebody else that's your ego not you and it's only when kind of experience comes in you start to be a bit more confident about what you're good at mm-hmm. that that ego can disappear and you go no do you know what I'm here to learn I know what I know what I can do and um and that's going to make me a better person but I had to I, I've had to always keep it in check to be honest with you because it's really easy for it to just run away and in my time with 
England and then going to Fiji where kind of Fiji taught me to just stick to the basics and enjoy the simple life. And the material was easy to get rid of in Fiji because it was replaced by happiness, people laughing, um, sunshine, the base, the basics living in the present. Cause you're never really sure. Even if you you're in Fiji and you've got a few quid, you know, the supermarket probably hasn't got very much in it. Um, you might get a cyclone. Um, you probably get a, a power cut every, every, every week. Um, and you just live in the present and appreciate the good things in life. But then you I bounce back from there to work a bit in New York. And now I'm in London. And before you know it, that three week, three years that I had in Fiji of, of understanding all of that gets unraveled pretty quickly. If you, you, you're going back to first world and all of that stuff. So I, I keep things in check. I have a, um, a tattoo that that's just here on my wrist that says Vela Mani and Vela Mani was the only value really that we, we, we had in Fiji, which the team had, which is uh, work together, love each other. And I just keep looking up, you know, if I'm feeling stressed, or I'm getting angry about something that I've seen. I'll just look at that and remind myself as a physical cue, mate, just take a breath. I do a bit of the uh, box breathing, you know, in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for fun, just to try to get you, get your, get your nervous system back thinking sensibly. Um, and I, I've got to, I've got to do that. I don't think uh, um, you suddenly, I, I don't, I've never felt permanently Zen-like. I've had it for, I've had it for large periods of time in Fiji, but I've not never had it permanently. Um, so I'm always trying to get back to that. Yeah, the pace of our lives are, you know, they're full of distraction, aren't they, and, and, and diversion. So it's very hard, you know. I, again, the same thing. The, the older I get, the more mindful I become. And and but yeah, it's you know, it's I'm only ever <laughs> something I mean, away from from being back, you know, back to a place where I maybe shouting out my car window at somebody who's, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's not me as a character. But we're you know, we're we're only ever a little step away from that. Um, but yeah. it's hard. It is hard. Everyone's well, everyone's a bit closer to it at the moment in lockdown. I think you know, I. I have nice walks in Richmond and, and, and in the park and normally lovely 80 year old women that are walking there are, are screaming at cyclists for going cycling too fast, you know, and that's the <laughs> current situation we're all in really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And, 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 you know, this, I was, I was just off, off the phone this morning with a kind of a, a woman called Cheryl Calder who specializes in vision and um, eyesight training in elite sport. And she just talked about how, how this is, causing us all to be not just narrow in looking at the phone all the time, but narrow in our thoughts and our visions and in our actions. And it kind of resonates a bit with me because I fall into the trap where you can spend hours doing your work on your phone and looking at various things. And I feel, you feel actually pretty, sometimes you feel a bit down after you spent a few hours on your phone and um, trying to have little habits to stop myself doing that in itself is is difficult enough. So um, I understand where, where people are coming from when they, they are the ones shouting out of windows um, and uh, various people. I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, there's something you said, you play rugby to express the way you feel from burst, uh, to burst free of the prosaic constraints of everyday life. So something from your book. I don't, I've grown up sport obsessed. Uh, I played very briefly uh, county level rugby league, for Yorkshire. And, you know, when I, but then I've always followed the enjoyment. So I wasn't loving rugby league at that point. Went to football, less than average ability at football. Got to 16 and thought, well, I'd better start drawing footballers now because <laughs> the only other good thing I'm good at. Um, but I've never drawn, I've never seen much difference between a pitch and a canvas. That sounds really cheesy, but, but 
I'd like to hear just a little bit of elaboration on, on that about expressive rugby. And it sounds like something that that's a reason like you parted company with England, that other things had stopped that from being a thing. Yeah, I mean, there's, t- there's two ways to look at it. One is when you were a player and, and and two is when now I'm a coach on the other side of it. And yeah, I, I guess it goes back to those times where I, you know, I'm imagining I'm whoever I am uh, playing for Man United in the FA Cup final, you know, back in the back in my garden in Brentford and you're doing stuff, you're trying stuff, you're watching someone do a cross, a cross step over or a goose step in rugby and you want to practice it and do it because it's fun and it was why I played sports, you know, for the, for that enjoy. I wanted to win things, but I wanted to, I'd rather enjoy it. Um, and then, and then I think when I've gone into professional sport, often that gets sucked out of you, you know, you, the amount of times that I'll hear, I don't even, even Brentford when we lost on Sunday, it's Barnsley, the coach manager said, Oh, we've had a bad day at the office. And it's like, please don't ever make the pitch feel like it's an office. Cause that's the last thing it should be. It should be a canvas certainly shouldn't be an office or a factory. Um, and I think we can we can easily get into that. And I know I've been in organisations where it's it's meeting after meeting after meeting. It's three hours analysing a game that only lasted an hour, you know, and, and you're like, why aren't you letting, going back to, why aren't you letting these these players like express themselves within a really simple framework? And, and I think one of the issues that, that us, we have as coaches is that those star players, those mavericks that like to do, different things and express themselves often like this in the they get mistreated by the coaches because they don't stick to what they're supposed to be doing etc etc but actually I think it's because deep down as coaches we know those players know more than us and they're, they're, you know and it's allowing them that and having checking your ego going do you know what this kid can do things that I can't even dream of doing or of thinking let them get on with it and give them some guardrails around their their day to day that can help them achieve that, but don't don't suffocate them. And 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 professional sport can do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I get. That's why I, you know I love watching sport for those moments where it lifts your emotions and it's far more artistic than scientific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just finished working on a, a short animated film for BT Sport about Jason Robinson, and yeah. you know, in terms of in terms of highlight reels and of explosive moments of just pure rugby and speed and breakaway tries I, I that was a rabbit that was a whole youtube rabbit hole that happened as part of the research you know it's just again it's some of the, the loveliest things and it's why it is it's why you grow up wanting to do it isn't it yeah it is and and, and and jason's a great example of i think one of the things that he did so well was that he didn't feel there was a script he had to follow you know he, he went and expressed himself and when he went from you know league when he was, they weren't sure whether he was going to make it or not. And then, and obviously did his thing and it was amazing. Then he went to union and he didn't, he didn't conscript to anything. He just went and did his thing. Um, yeah. They're the players that, 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 yeah, that you look back on and wish you could see more of and that look, make you fall in love with the sport. So yeah, yeah, he's a top, he's a top bloke. Yeah. 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 He's doing a lot of good stuff at the minute for, um, again, it goes back to what we were saying about, about young people and belonging and purpose. And it's a, it's a big thing I want to address more and more. I'm going to try and get him on the show through the project that we just worked on to talk about that because it's so overlooked, you know, about, um, again, we mentioned not going too far off track, but I find a lot of sometimes the reason why kids do is that they don't have the, the guidance or the context to put that excess energy that we all have as young people into 
Let's talk about instincts. I mean, this takes us to the sort of the decision, <laughs> wild decision to, it was a tweet, right? The tweet that came up for the, for the yeah. job. Yeah, so I'd, I'd left England um, and I'd kind of been offered a job with um, UK Sport as kind of strategic back of house stuff. So away from the, the fields and training grounds. And I didn't really feel like that was that was exciting. And then a mate said on Twitter, yeah, yeah, Fiji are looking for a new head coach. You fancy it? And yeah, I'd never been to Fiji, but I'd played against them and I'd coached a couple of boys that were Fijian. So something in me thought, I've got to at least find out where this is going to take me. So I did a, I, I sent my CV in. Well, I, I didn't really have a CV. I kind of put a few lines in. They said, look, we know who you are. You've missed our deadline, but let's have an interview at two in the morning. I think it was in, in Suva which was middle of the night in London, um, down a couple of espressos, stuck a tie on for the first time since I left school and and uh, waited a couple of hours for them actually to come online because in Fiji, you know, time is is, is perhaps not a primary urge for anyone. And uh, Fijian, Fiji time is like no hurry, no worry, right? You know, just, and if someone doesn't turn up for a meeting, it probably wasn't that important anyway. And he turns up, they turn up two hours later and they smash the the Skype out on to project it onto the back wall of the CEO's office and they asked me lots of questions like do I know Johnny Wilkinson have I met the Queen and things like that uh, I stayed awake and I thought okay um, that's a triumph in itself and then the next morning I just went on the internet just to find out a bit more about Fiji and the guy that interviewed me the CEO had been sacked straight after my interview so I thought that was it then really and then two weeks later I get a phone call and I'm, we're out having dinner in Re- in Richmond and um, and it was a it was a Fijian number, and they just said, oh, "Bula Ben, this is um, Berlin Kafoa. I'm the new acting chief executive of the Fijian Rugby Union. We've got a press conference here in Fiji in 20 minutes." I said, "Oh, that's great, Berlin. What's it about?" He said, "It's to appoint you as a new head coach of the Fiji national team." So I said, "All right, do I have any say in this?" He said, "Yeah, you've got 20 minutes." So I put the phone down, and if I had if I'd been really English about it, and I'd been given 24 hours, I would have got a sheet of paper out worked out the pros and cons had my questions ready for him in a follow-up phone call about how much was I going to get paid how long was the contract for where would I be living who's left from the team who are my bosses but I didn't have any of that information I only had 20 minutes and I knew I needed to do something different I had become a pretty average version of me really as far as I'd lost my sharpness I'd lost the why I was doing what I was doing as a as a coach which kind of threads back to when I was a teacher which is try and help people become their best version. You know, um, although people try and say that and sound a bit magnanimous, it's selfish as well, because you get a massive buzz out of seeing people do their thing and knowing that you're part of their journey. And I'd lost that really. Um, and so I, I picked up the phone and said, all right, I'm in. And they said, great, if you can fly to Fiji and I think it's about a week later, but um, pay for your flights, we'll pay you back. That, that, that never ever happened. And then I turned up about, you know, however many days later in Fiji, and, um, you know, and, and was met by, you know, so many different curveballs. It was hard to, to count them all, really, in those first 48 hours. Yeah, that paints a picture of what, of what that feeling, you know, to get there. And, and just, I mean, that, that's next level in terms of deep end. <laughs> yeah, there's a, well, there's a physical feeling. I mean, the, the following day, actually, when I had accepted the job, the following day, the first, the, that night, I kind of got swept up in it a little bit and, you know, had a couple more um, glasses of wine and just got a bit kind of starry eyed about it without really 
thinking about what I just agreed to. Following morning, I was I was really felt pretty sick um, mm. with 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 nervousness and worry and wanted to get out of it. And rang my agent, and he's like, "No, you mate, you've, it's all, it's over the press. You can't suddenly back out now. You got you got to go over there." And so when I got over there, I was already nervous. I hadn't been to Fiji. It was a long way, kind of get jet lag, then get jet lag on jet lag. And mm. I, I got there thinking I was knackered, open those doors and you get that, you know, that that feeling you got sometimes when you were a kid. Although it was a while since I was on a plane as a kid, but when you first time you go, go out and it's a nice hot wave of air hits you when you come off the plane. And I was met then by, by, by the TV and media for the next three hours and then bounced across on a quick flight to the capital, 26 minute flight to Suva where the government met me and we had a big, big kind of feast in Fijian um, with Fijian food and, you know, fish head soup and stuff like that. And I couldn't keep my head um, off the hit in the fishbowl really. And, and I went to bed and I, I just had sat on the bed. I remember going, shit, what have I let myself in for thinking I'm in a world where I, I I'm so out of my depth here. I just got, I, I, you know, but I was so tired. I, I could just about get my toothbrush out of my bag and just crashed. And next morning I opened the window and I see the blue sea and I see the blue sky and I start to go to places where everyone's just nice and happy and laughing. And that puts you at ease a little bit. But then I start to find out that they, that they had got no money. So they'd gone bankrupt. Um, they were being investigated by World Rugby for corruption. So they'd suspended any, any funding from the governing body. All the players that could go overseas to earn money have gone overseas. Um, there was no training base. Um, that My boss was the military dictator of the country, Frank Bynamarama, who had had two coups um, and his second coup he took over. And if you're head of the country, however you get there, you're also head of the Fijian Rugby Union. So he is my boss. And then eventually he put his brother-in-law in charge of me as chairman. He had gone to prison for a 12, 12 year sentence for kicking and punching someone to death at a wedding. And two weeks into his prison sentence, they, his brother-in-law, the dictator had decided that he had, you know, fully rehabilitated and, could be released from prison on full naval pay and is in the navy and he became my boss and also head of the prison service in fiji um which kind of summed up sometimes the the the, the politics around fiji and, and so that was my first you know and then my star player had his legs had been cursed by a black magic um yeah. curse that that meant he couldn't stand up for two days which again Again, wasn't something that any of the boys at Twickenham used as an excuse <laughs> <laughs> not to be able to play. So, yeah, I, I, I guess that all of those things were happening. So I thought, A, don't make any stupid decisions. Just listen. Try to try to take in as much information as you can until you get to a point where then you decide on the pace and risk of the decisions you are going to make. And, and secondly, I had about three training sessions with this team that were really unfit. Um, that I could see that they were really talented, but they just had no foundations. No one had told them how to eat properly. There was no discipline protocols, no timing for when you turn up at training, um, no encouragement. They didn't ever get feedback in Fijian society. It's rude to have an argument. So if anyone ever got dropped from the team, they would just find out in the newspaper. So you'd never know how to get any better. So you demotivated, but you could see glimpses of stuff that I'd never seen English players do. And I was thinking, Crikey, I just, if I can get this lot doing this on a bit more regular basis. And they were so thankful and grateful I was there. And I, was, I, I walked off my first training session having laughed the most I'd laughed in years. 
Mm. And I thought like, that, you know, that forget about all the other stuff that's going on. I'm, I'm here. I know why I'm here now. And, and so I'd have lots of stuff that would go on loads of shit over those three years, um, off the field, but every single training session without exception was almost a spiritual feeling. Really. There mm. was so the way they, they approach the game and the way they approach sport, it's, it's got to be fun. And they, they, they approach the sport like they approach life because you never know in Fiji or in any third world country, what's going to happen tomorrow. So they live in the present, you know, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's great as far as playing the game, you know, they'll, they'll chuck the most, the wildest of passes because that's what feels right in the time. That's their instinct. And because they do that a lot, everybody knows kind of what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not good. I guess if, uh, if you're living in the present and you're, you're at a hotel in Dubai on, on tour and there's a, there's a buffet because in that buffet goes very quickly because they're not sure if that buffet is going to be there tomorrow when they turn up for breakfast. And it's the same. Um, it was the same in some of their past teams with, with free bars as well. You know, <laughs> got to yeah. be very careful. One beer was never an option with the boys. I could never <laughs> go for a beer with them. It just, so I, I never had a, a drink with any of the players in the entire time I was there. But yeah. we had probably more fun than than I've ever had, mm. and that's one of the, that's one of the um, the most enjoyable currents throughout the, the story. Of the book that I picked up on was was that was the um, in some ways well from what you just described you know completely complicated, but then in other ways almost in microcosms really not you know they're just down to love and enjoyment and family. You know it seems to be a huge thing, and I I, I, I loved that you were able to extract your own ego, you know, having been the England coach and gone there as, a, as something of, well, very much an outsider, I guess, to then go and, and, and take the time, as you described, to explore, you know, the, the outer islands and, and get out of the capital and, and find young talent and talk to their families and worked out activators for each individual. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a show of, of um, humility. Um, but I guess it had to be that way. You know, you can't, I think you said it yourself like, that you can't turn up with a Western mentality to a South Pacific Island. No, like I think I've, I've said it in the book, something like, you know, I was using a laptop as a, as a, as an oar and paddling up the wrong way. If I'd, if I'd tried to do it as a Westerner, I had to adapt to the culture and it's kind of like, I use the analogy a lot. Like when you get, get to a new job, it's a bit like picking up your bags or, or use the analogy of carousel. There's certain bags that that, that you've got that you're always going to have that are your kind of fundamentals that you're going to keep. There's other ones that you that that you're going to need to to have new bags as well. And then there's other other bags that you you need to leave behind. Mm-hmm. And it's and so when you go into a new culture, you know that's a, that's your decisions you kind of make. What stuff are you going to keep that you that you've done before? What other stuff are you going to learn? And what other stuff isn't appropriate and you get rid of? And so I had to listen and I had to go back to the fundamentals. I never, you know, I didn't go to school in Fiji or eat Fijian food or listen to Fijian music. So I had to find out about the culture. And that meant meeting the players, finding out what drove them, finding out about their families, what was important to them, where they came from. And then that just grew a closeness between us all that made things a lot easier when the the, the stuff got a lot harder in the, in the years to come. Mm, yeah, and it's, and it's about... Um, it's about the you know the long term and a lot of hard work and attention and care to make a moment, isn't it? To to then so when those you know when you start to see something that you've implemented over a long period of time manifest in these 
awesome moments that are to come in this story. It's it must feel incredibly satisfying to know that you that you did that in a way that was respectful in a way that cultivated a, you know that environment. It is, and I, th- I think it's really easy, particularly in sport, where you know it matters what you what your result is on the Saturday. That if you're not careful, you, you know you you don't plan, you don't build as much underneath that, and you react too much if you lose or if you win. Um, and for us, you know, winning the Olympic gold medal was not about those three days or two weeks in at the Olympics in Rio. It was about what we had done previously. It was about those you know, taking those boat trips to those outlying islands and sleeping in villages and meeting the uncles of players and having conversations and having leading to consistent behaviours then for, for for those next two or three years where everyone clearly knew what was required, a clear black and white. But I, I always talk about it like you have you have a box, which is your guardrails. We So if I'm working with you, Ben, we've agreed what our guardrails are, whether that's, you know, a deadline for when the work's being done, what your roles are, what you want out of me, what the timings are. And then we agree them. It doesn't just come from me as, as, as the boss. It comes from all of us so that they're collectively agreed. Therefore, they're stronger, you know, because you, you, we've all agreed them. But inside that box, I'm just creating psychological safety where I want everybody to be their best version. And that means give them autonomy, give them belief and purpose, recognize their achievements, um, give them status and give them really safe, secure conversations so that when someone wants to talk to you about a concern, I'm not going to put a big black cross by their name thinking, oh, they're not going to be, they're not the right person. I don't like someone that contradicts or says something against me. And if you can get those two things going, then I think I think that's you're on your way to achieving what you want to. Yeah, very much so. And um, and, I, and I see it, I see it all the time, you know, in the, in the, in the creative industry, where a lot of my listeners are as you know as designers or working in agencies or as freelancers and you see it all the time it's that it's this it's the same thing it's everything's well not everything but you you see micromanagement and you see people coming in and doing the opposite of what you described in terms of coming and just listening and understanding the culture it's almost i'm here on the strength of my big job title from that other agency and i'm going to completely <laughs> change this culture and everyone thinks you're a dick you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know which yeah. is what and it doesn't mean the person is a dick it's just almost that they haven't respected what was already there and looked for that raw energy and then given people the freedom to be again be the best be their best selves yeah I see it I see it a lot i mean I, I work across all different sports um uh, at different levels and in corporate as well and, and i've got a couple of startups and it's all it's all exactly the, it's all, all exactly as you as you say the, the mistakes happen when someone comes in with predetermined beliefs or doesn't listen to people or doesn't doesn't actually put psychological safety as a, as a real priority for creating the right environment, allowing people to have, you know, as soon as you take away my autonomy, as soon as I feel like I've got no say in any of this, and that happened for me when I was a young coach, right? And I, I always would say, when you start your journey and whatever that is, whatever your career is, if you have a mode of transport to signify that, for me, it's a, like, a, it's my, it's my, rusty bmx that's you know that squeaks a lot doesn't go very fast hasn't got any gears but i can control it and if i do hit something when i'm cycling next time i'll probably understand how to maybe negotiate it but i'm in control and as you get into higher jobs you develop um, and evolve in the bigger organizations that that mode of transport changes mm-hmm. and and when i went to twickenham you know that became a really big a juggernaut that, that goes really fast in one direction, hard to change, 
you're not at the front you're certainly not driving it you're at the back somewhere with an obscured view mm-hmm. and you lose your autonomy and as soon as i lose autonomy in a job i'm 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 out of there i'm i'm gone i'm not you're not going to get the best out of me if i don't feel like i'm contributing and it's a corny saying but that nasa saying where they asked the cleaner you know what his job was and he said it's to put a man on the moon it's when you get that connection in an organization where everyone stands up on on a Saturday to say, yeah, I actually helped Leeds get three points. I might be doing the accounts in the in the offices, or I might be the night security guard. But yeah, I I made a difference to that yeah. that winning goal. That's when you're going to get an organisation that's feeling that autonomy and is going to probably be more successful than not. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I, I adore the uh, the story, you know, the sand dune training. I think. But am I right in thinking that was down to restriction and that was that was basically, you know, the money wasn't there and you couldn't afford to travel. Therefore, let's make the most of the natural landscape and what these guys have grown up um, in yeah. terms of terrain. I think it's a yeah. story. Yeah, it, it is. I'm, I'm, like my dad used to tell me stories when I was growing up of this Australian runner called Herb Elliott that had this crazy um, coach called Percy Ceruti and he... Uh, he trained his athletes harder than probably they'd ever been trained, but he wanted to do it in beautiful surroundings. And he felt that those two almost had to work together. Um, and so when I came to Fiji, I needed, I needed to find a solution to be able to train hard, create teamwork and togetherness, but with no money. And we had these Singatoka sand dunes that just are a world heritage site that we'd go up to early in the morning before the sand got too hot for our feet and, You'd see the smoke rising from the villages and you see the Pacific on the other side and you'd train ridiculously hard, but it's just the team there. And so everyone had that unity and they were doing stuff together. And as a coach, you can just take yourself away from that because they're a team trying to get up a sand dune and then back down one and up one. And um, it created all those things I talked about for psychological safety. And it's when that artistic way to look at training and sport meets that scientific you know and and the sand dunes are a great example of having that kind of perfect balance i guess Mm, and i would imagine you know the way i picture it from the from the way the book is written is that i I have to imagine there was a lot of bonding going on there between the players between you and and the squad um and that you know it's almost like you don't need to work on that because just the environment and the fun in the in the simplicity of the training fosters that yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, as a coach, it makes your job really simple when you have those sort of things. And you, you know, you they worked incredibly hard. They're in the beautiful surroundings. It was done very early in the morning when you get down because after a few weeks, the re- the villages around the dunes started to find out that we were there. So when we got down to the bottom of the dunes, they would be there often, like with their some food for the boys, mm-hmm. um, and we'd go then to a, a little. Um, uh, a water waterfall where the where we'd have our recovery I mean, <laughs> sounds yeah. terrible doesn't it and and my my, my team manager Rapati, who's, who's 176 kilograms he's a big boy you know he'd be in the bottom underneath the waterfall and he'd get his head and shoulders out and he'd be he'd be doing that all over his body the boys would be laughing at him and it would just be a very joyous experience yeah and, and it was very community and yeah I, I miss those moments yeah and I'd be remiss to not talk about Jerry Tawaya. I mean, the, it cracks me up the story about him hiding in the bushes, um, and the boots is just you know it's a it's a tale I'll always remember. 
Can you yeah. tell us that? I know, yeah. I know you told it a lot, but it's just it's no, worth it. No, I don't, I, don't grow, I don't grow tired of telling it. This is, you know, in my first early days, really, I travelled around and watched lots of tournaments. And there was this kid that was playing in this tournament um, called Jerry, too white. And um, when he had the ball in attack, you know, it was all about fun, doing things outrageously. He had amazing footwork and vision. He was ridiculous. Uh, but when there was hard work to be done, we had to defend, you know, no, no chance. You wouldn't see him, hands in pockets, walking around, waiting for somebody to get the ball back to him so he could do his thing. And it was the same in training. So we'd be doing this stuff in the sand dunes because I got him into the national squad training after seeing him. I could see that he wasn't the finished product, but he had something that no one else did. And we get sprinting these these dunes. And when you come back to the bottom, there's a lot of bushes. Um, and one of the times, you know, he would be hiding in the bush and thinking that, you know, he could perhaps just, I could ignore the fact that he was hiding there for a couple of runs and he'd get away of it. But you see his arm poking out and carry him, finish off the training session. And I took him then back. I said, right, let me drive you home and have a chat with Talanoa, they say in Fiji, with your mum and dad, just to see if we can help you become your best version. Or in, in kind of words like that. And so I drove him back and, and Jerry lived in a settlement in Suva in the capital. So, you know, it's it's not all sand and sunshine and coconut trees you know a lot of the the people in fiji live in the interior in, in pretty poor areas and there's not many dangerous parts of fiji but where he lived was one of those and he lived in a place called newtown um in fact he played in the olympic final and after the olympic final a couple of german journalists interviewed him and said oh it must have been a lot of fun to to grow up playing um with your mates on the beach of a coconut and he took his shoes and socks off and showed all the all the scars on the bottom of his feet and said i, I learned how to play rugby on a traffic roundabout and we went to that traffic roundabout because his mum and dad's house is next to it and it's two rooms it was a it's a corrugated shed with mum and dad sleep in one room and everything else in the other room and i don't think they have i think they had a long drop at the time and they didn't have a generator so no electricity no running water um in the house and I saw his mum and dad and said, look, your son's super talented, but he doesn't understand about consistent behaviours and we're never going to get the best out of him. He's not going to play for Fiji and um, how can he help? And they said, well, when he was, you know, 13 or 14, I think he he left school. He went to dive for fish in Boover Bay, spear fish with his dad. They'd catch the fish and he'd sell them on the side of the road, you know, early morning. And he'd go home when he'd sold the fish. And, you know, immediately, like, I thought, well, he's not afraid to, to work hard. You know, that wasn't the problem. He hadn't connected the benefit of training to performing. And then his mum said when he was 16, he, he came and saw them and said, I, I, I want to be a rugby player. This is my dream. And his mum and dad didn't say, look, you've got to continue to, to do what you're doing and sell fish and provide for the, for the rest of the family and your five brothers and sisters. Um, they went without food, his mum and dad, for a week. They got the cheapest pair of football boots they could get in the only sports shop in Suva and JR White's. They sat him down a week later. They, they gave him his left boot, said, this is your knife. They gave him his right boot and said, this is your fork and said, this is what you're going to use to put food on the table for us. And then they, they backed his dream. They gave him his why. And he had knife and fork written underneath his boots when he played in the Olympic final. Um, and it was, a, it was a, a massive moment for me because, you know, immediately I understood what was really important and valuable for them, um, connected to their why, connected to the people around that I could then use to help him, you know, get to the point that he would be self-sufficient you know he needed to get some good habits so i'd tell his mum and dad you know exactly when training was or exactly when he should be home all those sort of things that i probably shouldn't be having to to 
to tell a 24 year old to do, but it was to just get him to then become his best version. And I then did it almost the same going around to all the other families and see them and find out what their different whys were and, and to build that network of support, which I, which was absolutely crucial really in our success. I, I love that. And it, and it, and it, it brings me on to mentors and leaders. Um, I think I always think back to a college tutor I had called Bill Parker when I was, I was studying a BTEC in graphic design and your story reminded me of him in as, in as much as the attention to individuals and, and, the, and the nuances of a good teacher, what I consider to be a good teacher, which is the ability to, to shift from person to person and find those points, you know? I remember Bill dragging me to one side in a kind of fit of rage, a fit of rage, it sounds bad, but he was, he was pissed off that I'd consistently relapsed from these lovely free paintings I'd be doing in life drawing because of the time constraints um, to then when I had time to overthink my artwork to my project. Right. I would end up with these very stiff wooden, you know, uh, almost architectural blueprint print style drawings. <laughs> and he just flipped one day. We, you know, got just into the second year, and he dragged me next door, and he and he started shouting and saying, "We need to see this." You know what? And what I didn't understand and couldn't have understood at that age was that he knew I could take that heat. He he had paid attention. He had watched the way I behaved in the in the nice. studios. And you know, I was I was a Yorkshire lad. I, you know, I would be running around flicking paint at friends, and not all the time. But, you know, we, we yeah. you know, there was a really great culture of fun in this art studio because we come from the school system where you're sat in rows and you have to put your hand up to go to the toilet to suddenly being you know wearing what we want and being cool art students and and, and living the dream really. You know, not having to do any of the other subjects. But he saw that I I you know the way I was. And he wasn't afraid to give it to me. And he knew that I would, it would galvanize me. And maybe that's how he had to get to me. And it, and it totally worked. It put the fear of me. And I kind of thought, shit, okay, I've got to, I've got to get back on his good side now. And I did. And, that, and I'll never forget that moment. And it, it was the foundation of the style that I have now, the really loose, stripped back style. And he finally cracked me and got me away from this a very unnatural process that, you know, was just stuff I'd seen out there that I was trying to copy. Like, I guess we all do in those early, early years. But then the very next moment, Bill would go and sit with, you know, uh, I think of a girl called Eloise who was painfully shy and, and you know, never really got a word out of her, but immensely talented. And Bill would then go and sit and he'd almost whisper and be very gentle. And, and I just look back at that and think, what a wonderful teacher to, to be able mm. to do that and to draw something out of everyone. And it, your story just reminded me of that and, and the, the absolute importance for any kind of mentor or coach to be given the time to do that. You know, not to be given a whole pile of paperwork or bureaucracy or other bullshit, you know, that yeah, yeah. takes them away from that. Because when that happens, I mean, look at the school system, you know, people might disagree, but I just think teachers inundated with paperwork to do, having to manage COVID tests and not have the time to sit down with their pupils who are maybe going through mental difficulties. I think it's a life lesson more than a sport or an art thing, you know. I totally agree. And I would be, I'd, I'd love to know, what his boss was like, whether he had created that for him or whether they, the, the, the environment was such that they were all allowed to do their thing. And it just shows a great emotional intelligence, probably based on a number of things, some just innate ability and also his experience and knowing, you know, what's important and yeah. his value system. Yeah, it's, it's great that I'm the same. I, you know, I can remember from, from some, some teachers that I had from 40 years ago. And it's amazing, isn't it, how those things resonate and stick with you. Um, it, show, it shows you the, the power of a conversation, um, you know, and it goes again back to that old, slightly corny statement, but, you know, people might forget what, they, what, what you say to them. 
but they won't forget how they make how you make them feel. And mm-hmm. and that that is that is certainly my job as a coach and a, and and previously with a teacher. Mm-hmm. Super important, super important. I think it's right at the top, and it does. If, you know, if you wanted to break that down, it is creating that that safety psychologically for people to feel like they are valued. You care about them. The conversations you're having are not just you know one size fits all, and yeah. they that and and that actually it makes a difference. And and you 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 want to do better as a result of that. You do, and I thought a wonderful example was also this the story about Pio Tawai and 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 you know giving him lower targets in training for fitness, knowing his personal circumstances, but also being open with the rest of the squad about the fact that you were doing that. And these are the reasons why I thought that was excellent too. And, and very much, you know, again, just ticking all the boxes we just talked about. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Pio was one of the most talented players that I'd coached, um, you know, a big boy, six foot five, 120 odd kilograms when, when he was, was not being shy around the breakfast buffet and, uh, he was in just incredibly talented, but, you know, he'd gone through a lot of misfortune. Um, his wife, had, when I was there, his wife had died from cancer. His house had been destroyed by a cyclone. Um, he had a few demons. Um, so I could see we wanted him, but he wouldn't pass our minimum standards for our fitness tests. He just wouldn't do it. And, but it actually wouldn't make him any better, particularly we'd get him fitter and that would make him better. So it's then, okay, if you're going to ever do anything that's outside your clear black and white, then you've got to explain why you're doing it and everyone's got to agree. And so I sat down with the team and said, exactly what you said, said, look, this is P.O.'s, what he brings to the team. Um, he's not going to pass the fitness tests that we've, we've sat as a minimum for selection. These are the reasons why you need to agree that this is okay. I'm still going to get him fitter and he's still going to work hard, but we're shifting things a little bit for him and everyone agreed. And, um, it's fine when you do it's, it's fine when you do that because there'll always be outliers like that. Mm. Um, you've got to then tell everyone, you know, you can't, otherwise you're going to have all sorts of internal. Um, well, if you have black and white suddenly becomes gray, then you've got fog. And if you've got fog, you can't see where you're going. Um, mm. So, so it's really important to, if you're going to map them out to explain them to everyone, but yeah. And then, and then PO did have some black and white that unfortunately in the week before the Olympics, he did break. Um, he went out drinking um, in camp and the, the, he knew the black and white was that he would be, be dropped from the next tournament and just it's his bad fortune, I guess, the next tournament was Olympic Games. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we're sweet. I, mean, I, I still speak to him a lot and he's still doing OK. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's I guess that's getting to understand people still keep their black and white and still... In Pio's case, I, I couldn't protect him from the consequences of his actions once we had agreed things that he had to stick to because I knew that he would easily fall off into various dark holes. So I had to put mechanisms in place to help him. And if you if you kind of turn a blind eye to those things, it's not helping him. It's like misplaced benevolence, really. So ultimately, his story wasn't didn't finish on a high with, with me because I dropped him from the Olympics. But on the other side, we got we got him to play, I don't know, probably ran onto the field 120-odd times for Fiji over my time. And I don't think we would have managed that um, if we hadn't treated him differently. And, you know, he still went on to do some great stuff afterwards. And, uh, yeah, so so I'm, I'm, I'm proud, even though that didn't have a, a good ending, I'm proud of the way we, we looked after P.O. to help him try to become his best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, very, uh, it's a very heartening story. And just, and again, another lesson in nuance. 
Um, the, the cyclone, Winston, um, wow. I mean, you know, we, we, this story is full of kind of fresh challenges along the way that you had to adapt to, all of you. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest, on, was it the second biggest in mankind's history? Yeah, second biggest in, in and the biggest ever to hit the Southern Hemisphere. And yeah, ripped through the country, third of the village was destroyed and we all got Theca, which is a very active, virulent conjunctivitis that, that we got in our eyes as well. And it stopped, well, stopped everything really for a while and it put everything into perspective. Um, but it was also in many ways um, a, a real bonding moment for the nation and for the team. You know, it, it, mm. it, sounds, it sounds as silly as it sounds, when a country goes through a national disaster, that they're actually looking for some good news. And, and it's just yeah. so happened, you know, a couple of weeks later, we were due to play in the World Series. And, um, and you know, there was a there was a lot of um, goodwill for us to go there and do our thing and qualify for the Olympics. And it kind of probably was the beginning then of that final chapter towards the Olympics. We went to that tournament, we won it after a, a very very uh, odd preparation and difficult preparation and emotional preparation. Um, but that set us up for them for the Olympics, for sure. It goes to show, doesn't it? The I mean, I mean, particularly, I've seen this in New Zealand, just what, what I spent about seven months there. Not long after we first met, actually, I moved out there on quite a whim, met a girl and just kind of did it. You oh, know, nice. <laughs> instinctive yeah. decision, had a bit of an incredible adventure. But um, I was blown away by just the, the love of rugby down there but it speaks to something bigger and you've just hit upon it there and I think we're seeing it to a degree at the moment during Covid I've seen some people kind of bash on the fact that you know football is still going on but I think be it football be it creative pursuits as human beings we need that we need the fun and we need something that just takes us out of the, the what like you know the severity of what life can be and I think it's incredible that the nation pulled together in that way and willed your squad on despite such a horrible horrible event I agree. I'm with you on the, on that about the football at the moment as well. You know, uh, I, I get I get joy out of knowing that there's a there's a, there's a, some time to be able to disappear off into watching a game for ninety minutes, and um, I think it really helps. And 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 I think that helped Fiji in a very small way. You know, you put everything into perspective. You know that there's far more important things than running around after a rugby ball. But if it can just for for a moment, brief moment. Just take someone someone away from what what was a very difficult moment for a lot of the people's lives, where you know how they haven't got a house anymore because no current house insurance in Fiji. The the tidal wave swept into a lot of the coastal villages and meant that they couldn't they couldn't farm on those fields for years because of the salt water. Yet they were pretty upbeat. They were like, well, it's all right, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll go to another village where my cousin is. I'll live with them for till I can start to build. We'll, we'll change what we're doing in the village. And then to have seeing other Fijians somewhere else. We were in Las Vegas, which was the, a very weird place to be really around that time to go and then, you know, win a, win a world title over there. Um, yeah, it did, it did help people, I think, think, yeah, okay, we can get through this. The, the Andes trip. I think again, I think it's a masterstroke, and and it's just, maybe it's a strange analogy, but I I kind of lament something that seems missing now, and then this is the kind of the way we would go to the pub at lunchtime with our art college tutors. 
no one was drinking 10 pints. You know, this was this was a chance to step outside of the studio studio professional environment and, and go and have a laugh and tell some interesting stories and some war stories that would help the bonding experience between the tutors and these art students and to feel more mature and all the empowerment that you do so well. So when I got to the bit in your story about, you know, how everyone would go to the Olympic Village for X amount of time before the tournament, and yet you decided to take them to um, to Chile and then out to the Andes where you said, I believe you said some of the players had never seen snow before. And, and just what a masterstroke to perpetuate the the bonding and the fun and the, and the thrill of the new. Yeah, for, for us, it was a, it was a, a simple thing, really. I, I'd been in, I'd gone to the London Olympics as an observer because Team GB thought I would be the, the coach for the, for the sevens team for Team GB. But I had been some big events and I knew what it was like. And in Fiji, the pressure was being heaped on us. Um, and I knew that if we went from there straight to the village, Olympic Village, it just would have even got worse. And we needed to take a collective breath somewhere together. So, um, yeah, I, I, I toured Chile as a, as a player and had some contacts there. It, I guess it shows you also, like, when you go on tour to places and you, you, you make friends and you keep in touch with them, you know, however many years later, that kind of came back to pay me forward, I suppose, and set all of that up in, uh, in Chile. And um, and then we went there and we did we, we we really bonded tight for that last kind of assault and base camp almost really mm. in the Andes until we went went late into the Olympic Village with all of the distractions that an Olympics has um, to go and you know do what we'd set out to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, I was shocked. I shouldn't be shocked because of sponsorship and everything. But when you said there was a 24-7 McDonald's in, you know, yeah. in there, um, that's interesting. But also, I, again, wonderful that you were able to create a culture of trust where you didn't have to watch your players sneaking in there, or you know, which I believe you you said that you did see other other players from yeah. other teams doing that. Oh, yeah. Which is bad. Well, yeah, we, you know, I, mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book, but after about day four in the Olympics, there was a queue going around the corner and uh, outside of McDonald's with this is, you know, international athletes and their coaches. And there was a notice on the door saying, because of that, we're, we're limiting 20 items per person. You know, this is, this is, this, this isn't Olympic games, but half the people at, in a village or at Olympics are what I'd consider Olympic tourists. You know, they, they, their dream has been achieved by going to Olympic games. And, and that's really, you know, anything else is, is an added benefit. And, um, that means you've, there are so many distractions in, the, in an Olympic village that you have to be tight as a group and you have to also have a real alignment in what everyone's agreed and you have to trust people massively that um, they're not going to dash off because it, was a 24, it wasn't just 24-7 McDonald's, you know, every single uh, corridor had a, had a, a Coke, Coke machine, dispensing machine as well that just had wow. unlimited Coke. You all had your own little fobs with, with, that just activated your free drinks and so the amount of people that I've seen both self-sabotage in the Olympic Games and just get things wrong in those last few days when they've committed four of their four years of their life trying to get a medal is quite staggering, really. And again, it goes back to my principles. You know, if you haven't got clear guidelines that everyone guardrails that everyone's agreed, and you're not actually treating people like adults, then you're going to get you're going to get some um, derailers. And I've always believed that, you know, don't treat anyone other. If you, if you treat someone like an adult, you'll normally get an adult response. If you treat someone like a kid, well, you know, yeah, that's exactly what you'll get back. So, um, it, yeah. It almost sounds like the, the wheels were in motion from the moment you went on the, you know, the, the, as you described it, the base camp trip, that there was just such a sense of um, 
joy that that this was it that you'd worked and you laid all that groundwork for all that time and, and and created all those principles and that this was it this was the time to go and do what they do best on the field and enjoy it and i just found it interesting that you know you observed other coaches uh you know overall analyzing and just kind of almost fatiguing their own players at this moment when it should have been about that joy that you described on the pitch yeah i i think when you get to those last moments if you know my job as a coach um when any job i've done i want to make myself redundant you know i want to go to a big game and sit and stand and have a beer knowing that um everybody knows what there's is required they don't need you to tell them you know where to go who to pass to what who to tackle when to go and have food when to go and do your warm up because they have that autonomy and they have that they can run themselves and and that's kind of where we'd got to in those last those last few days in the olympics and I saw the opposite with lots of teams um people just think you know more is more and uh and you think I, you know my my brain doesn't work like that it's like okay if you're spending more time analysis with with players you're spending more meetings you're spending more time telling them what to do and then you think on the field suddenly they'll become these independent thinkers it just doesn't add up mm. so you have to take your ego away as a coach and go look enough's enough and it, you know it got to a point where I go into the going to the change rooms for the Olympic final. Um, and this was the most um, viewed rugby match of any format ever in the world. Um, that was, it was on, you know, I think 40% of 18 to 30 year olds in just in the UK alone watched the, watched the sevens final because it was, I think a nice, it was like a Saturday evening at 10 o'clock in the evening. So it was quite a nice time for Europe. Um, and I went in to do, to do my, my, my speech, you know, that, that you'd seen on any given Sunday and all that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> And I practiced it and I was ready to give it some welly. And I just saw everyone was happy and having little conversations and positive, positive body language. I thought if I said anything now, it, it's just going to be for me. So I just said, you know, good luck, have fun. And, and off I went. And, uh, and then they put, put together, you know, a, just a, an unbelievable, perfect performance in Olympic final that won us the gold medal, first ever medal for um, a South Pacific Island, uh, but also you know, the IOC gave us the the team performance of the Olympic Games, and and then we went on to you know back to bank holidays in Fiji, and my face on banknotes, and they gave me a waterfall, and the book got <laughs> written, and a film's getting made. So it, it kind of it it ran away with itself. Yeah, the script's just been finished now, and the wow. the, the right it's taken about two years to write. So fantastic! That's great news. So that, yeah, that'll be fun. Brilliant. You're not the, are you playing yourself? <laughs> no, 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 they'll get some poor, unsuspecting, out, unemployed ginger actor to play me. <laughs> oh, God. I just, um, and, and particularly for my listeners, I just think that particular story of going out there and playing attacking rugby in such a high-pressure situation that a final could be and is for a lot of people. I mean, I experienced it myself early in my career. I got to get my first commission for the Guardian and just completely lost my head and froze up and, and delivered just this. It was it wasn't terrible. They came back and used me again four days later. So I kind of got out of jail. But I, I did. I felt the fear and, and kind of buckled to, to some degree. So, you know, at least now it's almost when there's pressure on a job, I know how to use that pressure. And, and it tends to be the best thing for my style because it's so stripped back. Um, so... I just think it's such a lesson there not to buy into the client name or the agency name or the, you know, the prestige of a job. Again, it goes back to the illusion of success. It's almost, no, 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 you're still being brought in to do exactly what you do well. So go out and do it in purity. 
I agree. I agree, and I think you know it definitely helps dealing with pressure if you're if you have if you feel like you've got competency. That that overcompetence is what I want in all the players, where they feel they can do anything under any amount of pressure. But you don't want that overconfidence, and you don't want to it create underconfidence either. And and so if you get all of those those things right, then I think when the pressure comes on, it does lift you up and to, you know, and elevate you what you're doing. And if it, if you haven't got all your ducks in a row, then it can push you down. And then suddenly you've got sub performance. And, and that's a really, it was a really important lesson for me because I knew once we'd had every, all, everything done, we were well prepared. We'd done all we can. When the pressure came on, we did kind of feel like, okay, this is going to add to us. It's, we're not going to feel it. And, mm. and that's what happened. Yeah, and there was an expression that was wonderful, uh, flick off the devil, if you don't mind just explaining that, because again, this is a very real threat, you know, in sport and way beyond sport. Yeah, we had we used a few, I mean, in Fiji, um, they love storytelling, you know, it's particularly, you know, in the evenings with a hot chocolate, sitting around a table, having chat and telling stories. And so I would thread in any of the things I really wanted them to to to, to own, in, in on the field into stories and into physical manifestations so we'd have you know if if somebody was on the floor and knackered after you know continuous passage of play and they they just want to have a few more seconds on the floor you know because um somebody else can probably make that tackle and no one's really going to notice that's when you've got that devil on your shoulder and so you'd you know you you had that physical movement where you'd get your hand and you'd or someone would would look at you and flick an imaginary devil off their shoulder to remind them that like all of that is temporary you know just get on with it and don't listen to that ego which is that little devil um and you can you can get on and, and do things and we do those little things all the time as uh, little physical cues that the boys would own that would help them yeah, I mean that I never got involved as a coach to to tell them to get off the floor or to or to run over there because the players were managing it themselves. Mm. I have to ask. So after you know, I mean, this is one of I think on your book is there. What it says is one of the great sporting stories, which I 100 percent agree with. Was there an aspect of Frodo returning to Hobbiton <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> I just can't process how you come back from a story like that. Well, I can, but there must have been some reacclimatization going on. Yeah, the, well, I think the, I think when we go back to Fiji, that, that it was all a blur then. Everyone was just super happy and it really united the country. And, you know, that there, there have been problems. Um, we've had, you know, coups based upon um, Indo-Fijians and, and uh, in, Indigenous Fijians and all sorts of things around that. And, and we had a, just a, this beautiful unified country that... Um, so that that they, that was just that was just bliss really for that week. When I left, and I you know I ended up working in New York in with some basketball teams, and uh, yeah, that suddenly it's like uh, <laughs> yeah, you you really do feel like well, what what's going on. You, I, I you also act a bit like a dick as well because you kind of you've got just one Olympic gold medal, you've achieved everything you want to. You feel like you if you're not careful, you that ego gets the better of you. You're untouchable. You know you are the soothsayer that's the fountain of all knowledge and all those sort of things. And you have to then go for this deep compression where um, it's a bit depressing, really. I think, I think for me, it's not about the medal. It's about the journey towards it. It's about, about everything like that. And after that, everything's kind of downhill. Mm -hmm. I just had, a, I just had a kind of a hiatus where I was in Fiji and just got dragged along with everyone being so happy. But then when I left, it kind of just gets you and you do start to think, yeah, this 
it's not going to maybe it won't get any better than this and this is as good as it gets and you do you do have this big hole that can drag you down you can then become if you're not careful a bad version of you again go back to the material um new york wasn't a particularly great place for me to be then because there's plenty of material stuff in new york and um and then yeah you just you just you, you learn from that experience and then next time you know you achieve success you manage that a lot better so um i definitely can see when people say you know that, that, that there's a real drop in how they feel after winning something big um i totally get that yeah yeah i mean i mean not you know to the sharp end of that i suppose is, is you know i think of like the andrew flintoff story and um mm. you know and, and what comes when you've poured so much of yourself into such an intense experience over such a period of time that there is this void and a chasm. And I, and I actually got to interview Mick Foley um, from WWE, WWE um, three-time WWE champion. I'm a big wrestling nerd. And I interviewed him for a, a, health, a male mental health campaign that I put together for, on behalf of Calm campaign against Living Miserably. Um, and they kind of addressed the, the male statistic of three suicides to every one female because of the stiff upper lip and the, the some just something about the male condition. Um, so I wanted to explore this idea of artistic expression and creativity as a wonderful emotional outlet and what that did for a whole range of people in the creative industries and was able to actually interview Mick Foley, who was doing a lot of stand-up storytelling and kind of slash comedy at the time. And I asked him about that and I used the Andrew Flintoff um, documented depression after his athletic career. Career. And Mick used this wonderful analogy and he said it's like the wrestlers go from seeing their action figure on the shelf next to Spider-Man to not being able to get a gig as a waiter because they've just put their entire life into this almost circus environment where it's it's yeah. separate from all the rest of society. So, you know, not, not to liken that at all to your story, but there is the risk of that, isn't there, after such a high experience? Yeah, they're 100% is. And I think it's just about having the right people around you and having a bit of the ability to be able to go get away from worm's eye to bird's eye and just see a bit more strategically on, 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 on what life's all about, really. Yeah. Well, I've kept you uh, more than long enough. Uh, just quickly <laughs> ask, so what's going on now? I mean, the exciting, new, exciting news of the film, but also the podcast coming up. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, no, we'd be, we're just launching a podcast called... called um, uh, Took a long time to, to work this one out, the Ben Ryan podcast. So so that's that's uh, we've got a couple of teasers coming out now, so you can get that on all the normal platforms. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm in some projects. You know, it's hard to do my normal job at the moment as a going into clubs and working in different organisations. I work for UK Sport and Nike, and a lot of those are now all virtual until we're allowed to travel again. But um, no, I'm, I'm I've got my hands full, and and the pod's been fun, and this has been good. I've loved this, Ben. Thank you very much for having me on. There you have it. Thank you so much to Ben Ryan for taking the time out of his busy schedule to come and join us for the show. Do yourself a favour, go and listen to Ben's brand new show, the, Brent, the Ben Ryan Podcast. If, like myself, you take inspiration from the world of sport, from business, from the arts and people's stories of how they've used their own creativity and their athleticism and their own unique methods to achieve great things, then that's going to be a big, big show. You need to subscribe to that one. And please do go and read Ben's book, Seven's Heaven. It's absolutely amazing. Um, Tom Fordyce, who ghost wrote the book, is the first episode on Ben's show. He's a sports writer and a very good one at that, and journalist. And Margot Wells, wow, I mean, what a story that is. She, with no previous qualifications, coached her husband to 100-metre sprint gold medal in the Moscow Olympics. 
it's a hell of a story and a, and a very, very inspiring show. So check it out. So there you have it. And there we go. It's the first step on a new evolutionary chain as the Creative Condition Show. Thank you for tuning in. I do appreciate your listenership. If you get a second, please do drop us a little review on iTunes. So there we have it. Coming up, we've got some awesome guests for you. I've got the legendary Alan McGee, founder of Creation Records and the man who discovered Oasis, Primal Scream, the Jesus and Mary Chain, among other bands. He is a creative force of nature, a very, very funny, outspoken man who gave me an hour of his time to talk for the show. So we've got that one coming up. We've got the lovely and hugely inspiring Jesse Maguire, managing director of Thought Matter agency doing great work. Work That Matters is a strapline over there in New York City. And we have Tim Eastley, whose recent book, The Moon, is something special. Go and check out the photo journal that The Observer and The, Di- and the Guardian put up there. Google Tim Eastley, The Moon, and go and have a look on his website. Uh, Tim is an illustrator, designer, and photographer who publishes his own indie books too. Uh, great conversation. Again, no prior qualifications in the arts. Tim carved his way into something he enjoyed and did it on his own terms, and it's a great, great story. And I guess in these times with big fat university fees and you know three years out of your life, it's it shows that there is another way. So get your ears on that one. Big episodes coming up. Thank you for listening, guys. Join the conversation on the social at Ben Talon Pod or at Ben Talon. My personal account either is fine. Thank you to the big sponsors, illustrationx.com and the Association of Illustrators over at theaoi.com. Thank you once again to Ben Ryan. Check out his sports consultancy firm, Sleep and Water, if you're in that field, doing brilliant, brilliant work. Um, he's not a hard man to find Google the name cheers for checking in looking forward to spending some more time with you